everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And we're coming to you with part two of probably multi-episodes yeah. by the way we're going. We've only gotten through like, what, a fourth of the notes? Yeah. And it was like a 45-minute episode? Yes. So yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get through this together, guys. It's a good case. It there's is. so much. And I think that's why we're taking the time to unravel it because there's so little many nuances to it. Yep. So thank you all for staying with us. If you have not listened to part one, I would very strongly suggest you going back and listening to that before listening to this episode. It was released last week. And then, yeah, we can just kind of dive right in. Yeah. So if you have any questions while we're going through this or thoughts, you know, reach out to us. You can reach out to us through multiple ways. You can reach out to us from our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. And there's a contact page on there, along with all of our show notes. And you can reach out to us through Instagram at Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D, or our Facebook page, which is Criminal Discourse Podcast. Yep, yep. Okay, here we go. So last time we left off with Jeffrey McDonald being taken to the ER at Womack Hospital, and we're talking on the Fort Bragg Army Base. So now this is a more formal interview while he's at the hospital. And Investigator Conley with the CID, which is the Criminal Investigation Division of the Army, was directed to the hospital to do a few things was to collect clothing from Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. And I do want to say, when you read through our show notes, in case somebody points this out, Kimberly is spelled K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. That is how it is spelled on her birth certificate. But when you read a lot of things about this case, they leave out the E between the L and the Y. But I went with the formal spelling of her name. So he was tasked to go there and get the clothing and also talk to the pathologist about collecting the fingernail scrapings and hair samples. So next he went to interview Jeffrey McDonald in the hopes of, again, gathering more information about these home intruders. Because at this point, they're going off of what he said. They had no real reason. Some things weren't really adding up at the crime scene based upon what little he had told, but they had no reason not to believe him at that point. So he noted that when he arrived, Jeffrey McDonald was sitting up. He did have a chest tube taped to his right chest because that is where he had received the one and only stab wound. And he had no shirt on, but he was awake and he was alert. So what Conley noticed was that there was a slight discoloration to the left side of his forehead. And he had scratch marks starting on his left shoulder, traveling down towards the center of his chest, what looked like fingernail scrapings. But he noticed no other marks on him. And again, we said before, there were no stitches, there were no sutures. So this is what McDonald told Conley. He told them that after working at his base job and playing some basketball with friends afterwards, he returned home between 5 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. on February 16th. Now, after eating supper with his family, Colette had left for her night class. She was taking a children's psych course through North Carolina State University's extension site on the Fort Bragg base. So after she returned home, somewhere anywhere, I've read between 9.15 and 9.45 is when she returned She did carpool with another woman and dropped her off and then had to go to pick up some milk. So once she arrived home, they sat down, they had a drink together. This was 1970, so I will say. 
I do that now. Okay, but she was four and a half to five months oh, pregnant. Oh yeah, I forgot she was pregnant. I was like, I was like, I, why is that a bad thing? That's oh yeah, not she's a bad pregnant. thing to have an, <laughs> an evening cocktail. But she was pregnant. But that was 1970s. It was a whole different ball game. So they watched some TV till about 11:30, maybe even close to midnight. I believe they watched Johnny Carson or started watching Johnny Carson. And Colette got tired, of course, and went to bed. Now Jeffrey McDonald said he wasn't tired yet, so he stayed up and he watched some more television. And he read about 50 pages of a Mickey Spillane novel he had been reading. And then he decided to do the dishes. So he says he goes to bed sometime after 2 a.m. And when he went to bed, he found his younger daughter, Kristen, had wet the bed. And to not disturb Colette, he picked up Kristen and took her back to her bed and then decided to sleep on the couch. And he says he fell asleep possibly around 2.30 a.m. Can I just say, mm-hmm. this is really weird. Like, I, as I'm thinking through this scenario, like my daughter's three. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. She has accidents. Mm Mm-hmm. If my daughter were in my bed, had an accident, like there's like, why would you just put her in her bed? Like there's no changing of the clothes, no washing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I read. I mean, granted, it's 1970, but I'm pretty sure you still weren't supposed to let your kids sit in their urine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good question. It just didn't make sense to me because I was like, I mean, I could see. But we're mothers. My husband wouldn't do that either. I mean. Well, it's 2 a.m. He's tired. He doesn't want to wake his wife up and he doesn't want to really probably wake her up. And, you know, he's just putting her back to bed. Okay. But a good, good point. I'm just saying, man. So at some point he is awoken, he says, from his sleep by screams coming from Colette and Kimberly. He says he was immediately attacked by three men and that he noticed a white female also in the living room holding what he thought was a candle. Now he hears Colette screaming, Jeff, Jeff, help me. Jeff, why are they doing this to me? And Kimberly's screaming at the same time, Daddy, 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 just over and over. So he says the one black male and two Caucasian males were in the living room attacking him. And he was then struck on the head by the black male with what he thought was a baseball bat at the time. And in fighting back, he thought he actually struck the black male and might have even scratched him. So all the male assailants he described as being between 5'8 and 5'9. One of the white males had a muscle and wore a red jacket with a hood on it. And he noticed that the black male was wearing a fatigue jacket with E6 stripes on the shoulder. So this is a, an army fatigue jacket. Now the female assailant he describes between 5'6 and 5'7 and like I said, he thought she was carrying a lighted candle. He also stated that at one point he was knocked to the floor in the area of the living room and hallway. So kind of, you know, how his living room and dining room are open, like kind of an open concept. And then the hallway dissects off that. So he's knocked down in that area. And when he's knocked down, he notices that the female has on a pair of boots, kind of like go-go boots, like the tall knee-high boots, and that they appear to be wet because they were very dark in color. And he also said she wore a floppy hat. Now, during the fight, he says his blue button-up pajama top, so think of a long sleeve button-up top with cuffs, got pulled over his head and pulled down his arms and became stuck on his wrists. He couldn't get it off him. So then he stated that during the fight with the black male, he tried to grab the bat and it was at that point he felt he'd been stabbed and soon after lost consciousness, falling into the hallway opening. So when he awoke, he was lying near the stairs and he said he was cold and his teeth were chattering, but everything was quiet. And he said he could see down the hallway into the master bedroom and he could see Colette lying on the floor. 
he made his way to the master bedroom to check on Colette. And he noticed that she had a knife in her chest. So he pulled the knife out and threw it. And that's the knife that landed near the the dresser area, the Geneva Forge knife. And he tried to find her pulse. He couldn't. And he attempted mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Now, it was while he was doing this, he heard some gurgling sounds coming from Kristen's bedroom at the end of the hallway. So he went to her room and he claims he picked her up to render aid but then later back down. And then he went into Kimberly's room to check her and found her dead also. And then he made his way back to the master bedroom to call for help. And then our story picks up with what we covered in part one. So to talk a little bit about Jeffrey and Colette McDonald, they were both from Pachugu, New York, and had met in middle school and had dated off and on throughout high school, but had broken up prior to graduation. Now they reconnected in their freshman year at college. Colette attended Skidmore College and Jeff attended Princeton University. So it was prior to the end of their sophomore year that the couple mm, found out Colette was pregnant and the two decided to marry on September 14th, 1963. So Kimberly was born in Princeton Hospital on April 18th, 1964, and Kristen would follow when they were in Chicago on May 8th, 1967. Jeff was attending Northwestern University for medical school at the time. So I think he spent three years at Princeton, and then he got accepted to Northwestern. I'm not sure I ever found anything that he graduated from Princeton, but he completed three years and got accepted to medical school at Northwestern. So they lived out in Chicago for a time, and that was where Kristen was born. And upon completion of medical school, Jeff interned at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. So they had all moved back to New York, and I believe they were living with his mother. And then after he completed his internship, he decided to join the Army on July 1st, 19. 1969, and he, of course, entered the army with the rank of captain. And initially, he was sent to Fort Sam Houston in Texas. And it was while there at a presentation, I guess, to the specialties you can join in the army, somebody from the Green Berets came and talked about being a Green Beret. And he really got excited about that. So he decided to become a Green Beret. So I think he went to jump school for that in Georgia. I'm not sure which fort in Georgia, but he went to Georgia for that. So in the meantime, the girls stayed up in New York. And then once he was transferred to Fort Bragg, they moved down there with him, I think in September. I was going to say it wasn't so he wasn't in the army too long. before this happened. He wasn't even in the army a a year. year. Yeah. Yeah. So now on to the autopsies. Colette's autopsy was conducted by Major George Gamble. He was a pathologist at Womack Hospital. Now he surmised that Colette had died of a result of multiple stab wounds to her thorax and neck area. She had a wound to her right temple where skin was missing and the surrounding area was black and blue covering her right eye area. She had two additional lacerations to her left temple area and a midline fracture to her forehead. She also had extensive bruising to her chin area. Her head showed six blunt force trauma blows done by a blunt object, and the most significant one was to her nose, which caused a fracture. Now, Dr. Gamble found nine deep incisional wounds to the front of her neck and seven more to her chest area. She also had 21 small puncture wounds over the area of her left breast, and her right wrist had been fractured, as was her left arm, in two places. She also had extensive bruising 
all over her upper body and face. Both of her arms were bruised and broken. We talked about that in part one. And this was most likely due to holding up her arms in a defensive position to ward off the blows. Anne Collette was anywhere from four to five months pregnant with a male fetus. She was due to give birth near the end of June 1970. And she also had a small amount of alcohol in her system from the drink she shared with her husband the night before and a little bit of Benadryl. But there were no other illegal drugs in her system. And Dr. Gamble would approximate her time of death to some time occurring after 3 a.m. So now Dr. William Hancock conducted Kimberly's autopsy, also done on the 17th. He found Kimberly had received multiple blows, about a half a dozen or more, to her head that were sufficient to cause a concussion and a comatose state that may have caused her immediate death. Her right eye had been recessed and her nose was fractured. And he also found that she had at least eight to ten penetrating incisional wounds to the center of her neck, and these wounds were received after the blunt force trauma. There were no puncture-type wounds found on her, so all the wounds to her were done by a knife. Now, Kimberly's time of death was anywhere from the evening of the 16th to the early morning hours of the 17th, and I tried to find out why there was such a large amount of time when Colette's could be narrowed down a little more, and I I'm not a doctor, so I'm not sure how to read pathology reports, but you can read these reports online from those websites we talked about in the first part. And I don't know if it's because of their age and their body's cool sooner than an adult would. I'm not sure, but they left a very large swath of time. Maybe it was because of the blunt force trauma as well. Well, but Kristen's autopsy would be the same. And she didn't have any blunt force trauma. Kristen died of multiple stab wounds, 33 with a knife and 15 with an ice pick. And these wounds were to her heart and that caused her to bleed to death. She had also some wounds on her hands indicating that they may have been defensive wounds. She had no broken bones, no blunt force trauma. And again, her time of death was very similar to her sister's just from that like early evening of the 16th into about till they were discovered. So I want to talk a little bit about Colette's parents. Because they're on their way at this time. So the 17th, a lot's going on. Jeffrey McDonald's in the hospital. He's giving some interviews. The girls are all having their autopsies done. They're still processing the crime scene back at 544 Castle Drive. So the Kassabs, Freddie and Mildred Kassab, along with Jeffrey's mother, did arrive at Womack Hospital in the early afternoon hours of the 17th. And still, when they arrived, they had no idea what was going on. Nobody had kind of pulled them aside first and explained to them why they were called down. Because at the time, like I said previously in part one, Mildred thought, oh my gosh, did she have a miscarriage? Was there an accident? This is kind of what they're thinking about. And when they walk into Jeffrey McDonald's room, he's sitting up, he cries out to them, they're all dead. Colette and Kimmy and Chrissy are dead. They killed them all. And he started sobbing. I can't imagine. Can you imagine just not knowing why you're there? You know it's an emergency. You know there's been an incident. And you walk into the room and see your son-in-law, or in Perry McDonald's case, her son, and he's sobbing out that they're all dead. Like, what? Yeah. Like, what? (laughs) You you would just be shell-shocked. So Freddie Kassab was actually Colette's stepfather, but she never referred to him as a stepfather. They had a very, very close relationship. Freddie Kassab had married Mildred Stevenson, which was Colette's maiden name, Colette Stevenson. When Colette was around 12 years old, Colette's father had actually committed suicide. So Colette and Freddie, like I said, very close relationship. They would talk weekly. Freddie was a salesman, so he had what was called a trunk line in his office, like a business line, where he could make long distance calls and it wouldn't cost them anything. Because again, 1970, if you wanted to call the town over, it was long distance and very expensive. So in this case, it really wasn't for them. 
So he would call her, especially when she was living in Chicago and when they moved down to Fort Bragg. He was actually the one that brought her from New York and the girls down to Fort Bragg. Now, this wasn't Freddie's first marriage. Freddie had been married previously. I want to say he was married two previous times and he had no other children. Current. He had been married during World War II and it is said that he worked for the Canadian military and intelligence. So he was stationed in Europe and I believe at the time he was in Italy or Spain when the air raids were going on in England and his wife and baby daughter were killed in the air raids. So back to the interviews. The next day, we're on February 18th now. Jeffrey McDonald is once again being interviewed at the hospital and he relays the same information that he did the day before, but he started to add some new details. He told the investigator at the time that prior to retiring to bed, he had turned on the light in the kitchen and the hallway bathroom. And they had done this because if the girls got up, they want them to be able to see, like if they needed a drink or to go to the bathroom. So he also stated that he might have gone into the hallway bathroom to check his wounds after he checked on his wife and kids prior to calling for help. So that was the first time he shared a little bit of that information. And another detail added is that he thought that one of the white males, the one with the ice pick, had lightweight gloves on. And he clarified, well, the They might have been surgical because he would be familiar with that. That's what he wore for work. And he also felt that, you know, he would be able to identify the black male and the female assailant, but probably not the white attackers. Now, on February 20th, there would be a third interview at Womack Hospital and McDonald shared some additional information from the evening prior. So on the 16th, he said that as Colette left for class, he was alone with the kids. They had no visitors. Nobody visited the residence. No telephone calls came in. He didn't make any, didn't receive any. And he said Kristen went to bed around 7 p.m. and Kimberly went to bed around 9 p.m. Now, most of the information, again, was the same from the prior interviews, but he added he may have looked out the utility room door before he called for help. So on February 28th, McDonald was released from Womack Hospital. He had recovered from his wound sufficiently to be released. Now, funeral services would be held on Saturday, February 21st on Fort Bragg's base at the John F. Kennedy Memorial Chapel. McDonald was allowed to leave the hospital to attend those services. The bodies of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen were flown north on Sunday to be buried in a Long Island cemetery in New York State. And those burials did occur on Monday, February 23rd. Jeffrey McDonald did not attend. (laughs) Our listeners can't see your look. (laughs) I'm just saying. I know, but I'm just saying. I mean, really? You don't attend your formal internment of your loved ones? So now we're going to talk a little bit about the missteps in the investigation, because this will come definitely into play as we move forward through all the investigation. And there were missteps. I think there's a phrase, have you ever heard of it? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, must be a Pennsylvania thing from my family then. <laughs> I've heard it. But it's about like, you don't throw everything out. Were there missteps? Yes. But were there things they did really, really well? Yes. So we're going to talk about the missteps, though. And one of those was, it was discovered that after Jeffrey McDonald had been removed to the ambulance and prior to the removal of the victims, Jeffrey McDonald's wallet had gone missing. Now, Jeffrey McDonald's wallet and keys were on the desk right inside the front door. So what they determined happened was James Paulson, a medical corpsman, admitted after the fact that he stole the wallet. Yeah. So he had arrived at 544 Castle Drive to transport the victims to the morgue. But while waiting in the living room, he noticed the wallet on the desk. So he took it. Really? Yeah, that's dude. You're there to pick up dead bodies of a family that's been annihilated, children and a woman. And you think it's an appropriate time to lift somebody's wallet? (laughs) 
Well, and of all the stupid things to do, like that nobody's going to account for a missing wallet. they did. Immediately, they knew. One of the CID investigators was like, wait a minute, where's the wallet? So prior to Paulson leaving, even though he had already hidden the wallet in the ambulance, they searched. They searched everyone there, like searched their body, had them turn out their pockets. They searched the premises. They searched the vehicles. But unfortunately, he must have hit it really well or they did a pretty crappy search because they didn't find the wallet. So on the way to the hospital, he decided to throw it out the window after taking the $6 that was inside. So he did not touch any other objects in the Madonna residence because he literally was right by the front door. He wasn't traipsing through the place. So it was 1.30 in the afternoon on the 17th that a soldier by the name of Leonard Mackey found the wallet. He was leaving the hospital where he had gone for some outpatient care and he had turned that over to his unit commander. So they were able to get the wallet back. But still, when you're talking about making sure you account for everything. Yeah, the crime scene. That was like, "Mm, well, there would be more of that. So the famous flower pot. If you're familiar with this case, you know about the flower pot. So when MPs first arrived, we're talking Polk, Micah, Trevere, they noted that the living room area, especially that had the overturned coffee table lying on its side and a potted plant that had been on the table was now on its side with its contents spilled out across the floor. And at one point, there were probably 12 to 13 people inside the McDonald residence. Again, they tried to keep them by the front door or keep them back where I believe at the time they were probably working on McDonald. And the MPs and medics, it was one of those medics, again, that had decided to upright the flower pot that they saw on the floor and go sit on the couch. So he was by the door standing there and I guess he got tired of standing. So he decided, (laughs) I'm going to just traipse across the living room and oh, look, this is turned over. Let me upright it and then go sit on the couch. And immediately MPs that came into the room were like, what the hell are you doing? Get up, get out. Like they were like unbelievable. So the people that seem to have sticky fingers and not preserve a crime scene were not necessarily the MPs or the CID investigators. So another misstep was that the MPs, now this is a mistake by the MPs, they were assigned to guard the outside of the apartment. So once everything had been removed and they sealed it up, they had guards on all the doors and they allowed the trash to be emptied from the McDonald's garbage cans before they had been gone through. So I don't know if that was a miscommunication where they thought, oh, somebody already searched them so they can be released or the garbage men came by and They let them pick them up and take the garbage. Now, we talked a little bit about the bloody footprint that was seen coming out of Kristen's room. And they tried to cut the floorboards. It was a wood floor. So they tried to cut the boards to take the footprint with them. They had already photographed it prolifically. So they had the measurements. They had the photographs. But when they tried to get the wood up, it split. So they lost the print. They did not use the original print from the floor. And the pieces of skin found under Colette's fingernail were lost along with a vial containing a blue fiber that was found under Kristen's fingernail. So some of the vials were lost, whether it was in transport or at the lab, they don't know. But some evidence was not lost. And by March, some evidence had already been analyzed. And this was all being done at Fort Gordon in Georgia. So what they had analyzed at that time is the loose fibers found in all three bedrooms came from McDonald's blue pajama top. Pieces of rubber glove found in the master bedroom, remember we said it was kind of in the sheet, were identical in composition to the rubber gloves found under the McDonald kitchen sink. A blonde hair found clutched in Colette's hand would be found to be her own. And McDonald's fingerprints were not found on the handle of the Geneva forge knife. In fact, fingerprints would not be found on any of the knives 
or the ice pick. Paint found on the club used in the murders had paint on it that was identical to the paint on the bookshelves in Kimberly's bedroom and also matched the slats beneath her bed. So that was the evidence they were able to tie to the crime scene. Now we talked about this a little bit before about the blood analysis. Each member of the McDonald family had a different blood type. Colette had type A, Jeffrey had type B, Kimberly had AB, but Kristen had O. So now where the blood was found was interesting. So at the entrance of the master bedroom, there was a six inch circle of Kimberly's blood. Her blood would also be found on the rumpled sheet on the floor of the master bedroom and on the torn blue pajama top. Droplets of her blood would also be found between the master bedroom and her bedroom. So in that hallway. Colette's blood was found in Kristen's room on the wall in the form of splatter and on the top sheet of Kristen's bed. And the bloody footprint leading out of Kristen's room was also in Colette's blood. Her blood was also found in a rolled up in the top sheet and bedspread, again, found on the master bedroom floor. Now, Jeffrey McDonald's blood was found on the kitchen floor and on the right side of the bathroom sink. And those were really the only two locations that his blood was found in in any sort of large quantity. No blood of his was found in the living room or the dining room. Now, CID did conduct a formal interview. All of those other interviews was, again, to gather information about the alleged intruders and kind of to nail down what happened in the house. But they did have a formal interview, especially when some of the evidence analysis came back in. And this was conducted at the CID office on Fort Bragg with investigators Ivory Shaw and Grebner. Now, McDonald came to that meeting by himself. He didn't have any sort of JAG lawyer or lawyer with him. And he was advised at that meeting that he was a suspect in the murders of his family, and he was read his rights. He made the following statement. So this is taken from the CID report. He recalls checking the utility room door sometime after he gained consciousness and it was standing open. He washed himself in the main bathroom after seeing his wounds. He entered the kitchen only as far as the telephone, which was right inside the doorway. He could not identify the Geneva Forge or the old hickory paring knives as coming from his residence. And he denied ever owning an ice pick. He opinioned that the wood used in the murders could have come from his house, but he didn't think he had any that size. And if any of the intruders were injured, he felt it would have been the black male, again, leaving scratches on him. He could not identify any suspects or anyone who had reason for wanting to harm him or his family. And he maintained that his blue pajama top was torn in the living room before he laid it over Colette's body. He admitted to using gloves to wash the dishes, but could not remember if they were the, you know, those big yellow rubber gloves to wash it. You never. Yeah, I'm yeah. just thinking what other kind of gloves? Well, surgical gloves. They found he had surgical gloves under the sink that Mm-hmm. Colette would use to wash dishes sometimes, oh, okay. I guess, instead of the big yellow ones. And he could not recall moving Colette's body after entering the master bedroom, but may have adjusted her shoulders to lie her completely flat so he could render aid. He said he wasn't wearing his glasses when he checked his children and presumes the blood on the lenses got there during the attack. Because remember, they found a speck of blood on the lenses. He explained his injuries to comparison to his murdered wife and children by giving the opinion that perhaps he was the first one attacked and Colette and the girls were brutally murdered murdered after he was unconscious. He described his wounds as a couple of blows to the head and a lot of little puncture wounds, a little cut to on his abdomen and a couple of stab marks on his arm and of course the puncture wound to his lung. Now after initially agreeing to take a polygraph examination, once he left CID headquarters, he called in about an hour later to say yeah, no, he was not willing to take a polygraph, which is his right, he doesn't have to take a polygraph. So McDonald was not formally charged at this meeting, he was just 
saying, listen, you're a suspect in these murders. Because the CID really wanted to keep him talking because they knew that not all the evidence had been analyzed. They still wanted to take their time doing this, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's, because there were some missteps. They wanted to make sure they tightened it up. But that got thrown out the window when the provost marshal had a press conference naming Captain Jeffrey McDonald as the prime suspect in his family's murders. So he was immediately relieved of his duty. Again, he wasn't formally charged at this point. They're just putting it out that, hey, because this really was national news. This, and this isn't a time again, no internet, no 24-hour news stations. This was either, you know, radio, newspaper, or your nightly news. And at the time, I asked my mom, do you remember back in 1970, the Fort Bragg murders of a wife and her two young daughters? And at the time, my parents were in Hawaii. My dad was stationed there with the Air Force. And my parents were like, yep, we remember that. I mean, they're in Hawaii and they remember that. So this really made national news. So there was a lot of pressure to find the person or persons who did this. And the provost marshal decided to jump the gun and say this is the prime suspect. Well, and do you think it had anything to do with the fact that they had sort of the Manson murders and things like that? Well, and yeah. they wanted to try to, like, it sounds almost to me like it was a, that's that's not what's happening in this army base. Like, right. we're not losing control over these hippies or what have you like we have control of this but this is what we think actually happened because i think at the time i may be a little wrong on this but the manson murders had occurred about six months prior to the mcdonald murders but i don't think they had suspects in custody yet so Mm -hmm. they hadn't even they were working on that crime out there before they discovered this was the manson family so that was kind of still up in the air so you have that fear factor now you have on the east coast in a military base yes on a military base and in the newspapers they had printed out that this was possibly done by drug crazed hippies so now on the advice of a family friend perry mcdonald was given the name of bernie siegel he was a lawyer from philadelphia and this was to represent jeffrey's self-interest because at the time he could have, and I think he did go over to the JAG unit, the Judge Advocate General's office to ask for an attorney. But this family friend said, listen, he needs a private attorney, someone not connected to the military. If you feel that he's going to be railroaded, he needs somebody separate from the military. So Bernie Siegel did take on the case. And by the end of April, Siegel had McDonald examined twice by two psychiatrists in Pennsylvania. And their determinations were basically that McDonald showed no psychosis, no psychopathic tendencies, and he was not directly involved in his family's murders. That was a very simplified version yeah, of their we're, testing. We're breaking it down for everybody. <laughs> right. So on May 1st, 1970, the Army now formally charges Captain Jeffrey McDonald in the murders of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald. Now, it was in July of 1970, McDonald had given an interview to John Cummings. He was a reporter for the Daily Long Island newspaper, and this had been arranged by Bernie Siegel. Now, according to the book Fatal Vision, McDonald was a bit put off by this because Bernie wasn't telling him what the financial arrangements were for giving the interview. He had just set this up. So this was the first first interview he had given publicly, and he gave details into the night of the murders. And these were details he didn't even share with close family and friends. Because when they would ask him, like Freddie Kassab, he wanted to know. He wanted to know what happened, like any parent would want to know. And each time, Jeffrey McDonald kind of put him off and say, it's just too painful to talk about, or he'd break down. And of course, you don't want to push him and you want to be respectful. So he wouldn't, he just kind of back off and wait for another time. But they weren't really getting any answers. So he told Cummings that he had sustained 
12 ice pick runes across his abdomen and three in his left arm. He also said that along with the stab wounds to his right chest, he was also stabbed in his left arm and twice in his abdomen. He also stated that he was treated for shock while at Womack Hospital, and he shared that he thought of committing suicide the night of April 6, 1970 by hanging himself with his belt from the exposed pipe in his barracks. So after the murders, he couldn't go back to 544 Castle Drive. So once he got out of the hospital, he was moved to bachelor officer quarters. So once he was formally charged, though, they had a guard on the door at all times. And he claimed that his stab wounds were not as deep as his other family members since he was defending himself. So now it was after the Newsday interview that McDonald took it upon himself to act as his own public relations manager. And he reached out to a variety of publications to Esquire magazine, Los Angeles Times, North Carolina Observer, and even Time magazine willing to sell his story. He wrote them letters basically stating that the army had bungled the investigation from the start and that their belief that he was the guilty party to the murders was simply a cover up and he was being made a scapegoat. Now with Time magazine, he wrote them that he was placed in the intensive care unit at Womack Hospital for his injuries. And side note, he never was. So on July 5th, 1970, an Article 32 hearing commences with Colonel Warren Rock assigned as the investigating officer. So in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, an Article 32 hearing occurs prior to a formal court-martial, and that's just to determine the merits of the charges. So like a preliminary hearing. Or like a grand jury? No, not a grand jury. It's just an investigative officer. It's 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 you just come and kind of the prosecution lays out the evidence as to why they're filing these charges. And if assigned investigating officer, in this case, Colonel Warren Rock, feels that, yeah, there's there's enough here. It's sufficient. We're moving to a formal court martial. So now Captain Jeffrey McDonald denied, of course, killing his wife and kids. And at the hearing, testimony was given as to the day leading up to the murders. So this is Jeffrey McDonald's testimony at this Article 32 hearing. He claims at 6 a.m. on Sunday, so we're talking February 15th, he had begun a 24-hour shift at Hamlet Hospital in Hamlet, North Carolina. He did not see many patients that night, so he, he says he was able to sleep for about six hours total. I don't know if it was six hours continuous or a little bit here, woken up for something a little bit there, because I believed he worked in the ER. He said he got off shift at 6 a.m. on Monday, February 16th, and drove these 60 miles back to Fort Bragg. How often was he working at this other hospital? He was working actually at two other hospitals to make ends meet. So along with his regular army job, he worked at these other hospitals. He moonlighted there for extra money. So he had breakfast with his family and then he went back to work at the Six Special Forces Group Surgeon's Office. And he returned home from lunch and then went back to the office. So when he got off around 4 p.m., he played basketball with some friends. And then when he got home, he took Kimberly and Kristen to visit a pony that him and Colette had gotten the girls for Christmas. Christmas. So they ate dinner around 6 p.m. due to Colette's night class. She, of course, left around 6.15. And after putting Kristen to bed with a bottle of milk around 7, he returned to the living room and says he fell asleep on the living room floor. Kimberly woke him up around 8.30 to watch the television show Laugh-In. And then she went to bed around 9 p.m. shortly before Colette got home. So Colette returned home again anywhere from like 9.15 to 9.45. She put the milk in the fridge. She changed into her pink pajamas and joined Jeffrey McDonald in the living room to talk and watch some television. He thinks she went to bed around midnight because they had started watching the Johnny Carson show. So after Colette went to bed, he said Kristen woke up. So he got her a bottle of chocolate milk and he didn't really hear anything more from her. He finished washing Carson, did the dishes using the rubber gloves, he thought, and then afterwards, 
Lindsay went to the living room, read his novel, listened to the FM radio set, and he said he was wearing his glasses at the time of reading. And at some point, he turned off the stereo and then went to the small bathroom off the utility room. So when I talked about that before, it, had a lot, it sounds like it had a little half bath in there. So he says he went in there and he didn't remember checking to see if the door was locked or not to the outside, that that was off the utility room. And when he went to bed, he found Kristen was on his side of the bed, the right side of the bed, and that she had wet the bed and to not disturb Colette, picked her up, put her back in her room. He took an Afghan blanket, went to sleep on the couch, placing his head down on the south end of the couch, so near the front windows. And he said this happened uh, probably shortly after 2 a.m. So not to repeat what McDonald had said in previous interviews, I'm just going to add what he didn't share up to this point. He said during the attack, he stated upon being awakened by Colette and Kimberly's screams, the black male, of course, raised the club, swung it, hitting him on the left arm and the left forehead, knocking him back on the couch. He said he sat up and again caught the next swing of the club, and that is when the two white assailants started punching him in the chest, in the neck, in the shoulder. He said he suddenly had felt a very sharp pain to his right chest. Now around this time, he says, during this fight with all these intruders, he got the pajama top pulled over his head, wrapped around his wrist, and he used it sort of like a fabric shield to ward off the blows. And he says he grabbed the hand of one of the white assailants, and that is when he noticed that person was wearing, and this is a quote, a heavy, rough grain glove. He attempted to free his hands from the pajama top, and that's when he was hit again in the shoulder. And he says he was still somewhat on the couch, kind of like he'd get up, get knocked back. He'd be half on the couch, half off the couch. And he believes he got his left foot on the floor and pushed into the attackers. And that is when he fell near the stairs. And that's when he remembers seeing a knee and what he thought were boots. Now, he estimates this attack took basically less than a minute. Now, McDonald claims that he lost consciousness, and when he awoke, he was lying on his stomach with his hands trapped beneath him, his wrists still wrapped around the pajama top, and his teeth were chattering, his head and chest hurt. He said he walked to the master bedroom, turned on the light, and that is when he saw Colette leaning up against the green leather chair in the bedroom. He took off his pajama top, and he said he just dropped it at that point, and then moved Colette to lie on the floor. And that's when he removed the knife from her chest and threw it. And he gave her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation for a few seconds and then stopped when he noticed air bubbling up from her chest. That's when he says he picked up his blue pajama top and laid it over her chest. And he may have put the white Hilton mat over her torso, but doesn't remember doing so. Next, he went to this children's rooms to check on them. Now, he says at this point it was first Kimberly, then Kristen, and he either checked their pulses or gave them mouth-to-mouth. Then noting his injuries, he went to the hallway bathroom and he washed his hands and used a tissue to dry them. Then back to the master bedroom to recheck Colette's injuries. He then removed the pajama top to do this and then dialed zero using the phone in the master bedroom. All the noises that you hear below, I apologize, my dog Otto is in the studio with us today and he just won't sit down. So now McDonald also testified that he told the operator his name, that there had been a stabbing and he needed police, MPs, and doctors. He claims he was asked by the operator if his address was on or off post, which she did because initially he didn't say MPs. He told her it was on post and she allegedly told him that, well, that's a military police matter. 
Thinking the operator wasn't going to help him, he dropped the phone and noticing the utility door open, he went to investigate and he says he looked and saw nothing. He states that he checked on both of his daughters again and then went into the kitchen and picked up the phone there. He heard both male and female voices on the line and he restated his request for assistance. So by this time, the operator had called the MPs. They're both on this open line and then he gets back on the line in the kitchen. He says he then dropped the phone and believes he went into the kitchen sink and washed his hands again. His next recollection is him struggling with the MPs trying to help him. Now, McDonald claims that the doctors treating his injuries at Wilmack Hospital didn't notice or didn't record his ice pick injuries. He also noted that he left several messages for the investigators and all but two had been returned. So he's making the case, I reached out every day and no one really got back to me. McDonald was caught unawares that he was a suspect until the April 6th meeting where he was read his rights. He also testified he was never shown any pictures of his alleged attackers to identify. Now, his attorney, Bernie Siegel, during the Article 32 hearing had commissioned an artist to draw up a composite sketch of his attackers. Even though he had given this composite drawings, nobody had done that prior really to this hearing. Now it was during the Article 32 hearing, McDonald testified that he loved his wife and kids. They, more than anything in this world, they were his world. Now upon cross-examination, he however did admit to several sexual relationships in December of 69 while in Texas at Fort Sam Houston. And he claims he had very frequent affairs during his marriage and that Colette never knew because he never told her. We're going to come to find out they weren't so infrequent. So Mr. Dillard Browning, he was a forensic chemist. He was with the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory at Fort Benning, Georgia. He testified to various chemical analysis. They had run on the fibers, the hairs, the paints, the waxes, the wood chips found at the crime scene. And an interesting note is that he testified to receiving six candles from the McDonald household. Colette liked the candles, apparently. And one of them was multicolored. Now, a chemical analysis had not been completed by the time of the Article 32 hearing. That was one of the reasons CID wanted to wait to charge him because they wanted all the analysis completed, but it wasn't by the time the Article 32 hearing took place. But I think later on they would discover during the reinvestigation, and we'll get to that, that all these candles had different chemical compositions to them. And did they match? Because I know that there was a lot of like wax found on the floor throughout the house, but from what I saw, they couldn't match it to the candles in the house. I know I didn't read anything about matching, but I do know that each of those spots, and I think there were three of them at least, they had different chemical compositions. So they did not all come from the same candle. Okay. So the Kalen family, they were the neighbors to the McDonald's. Donald Kalen testified that he never saw Jeffrey or Colette argue and felt they had a really good marriage. He never saw any signs of abuse committed by the parents towards the children either. Now, on the night of the murders, Mr. Kalen had gone to bed between 10 and 1030. He said he heard no noises until awakened by the police. Now, Pamela Kalen, she was the babysitter, the daughter of the, I think the younger daughter, the youngest daughter of the Kalen family, testified that her bedroom was directly above the McDonald living room. And she testified that on occasion she had babysat for the McDonald's and she felt the children were normal and the marriage was a good one and they appeared to be a happy family. So she testified that she could hear conversations held in normal tones from her bedroom, couldn't hear what they were saying, but you know, out of that garbled, muffled stuff if you're upstairs and somebody's downstairs. On the night of the 16th, she said she went to bed around 1030 and she testified that at some point she was awakened by Jeffrey McDonald either laughing 
or sobbing. She couldn't tell the difference. But she heard no evidence of a scuffle, of furniture being moved, or screaming. So she just kind of heard this and was like, ugh, you know, roll over. So Franz Grebner, he was a commanding officer of the CID in Fort Bragg, testified that he was in charge of coordinating all non-military investigative agencies, like the FBI, since this was a military base. 20 FBI agents had been assigned to the investigation. There were over 3,500 interviews that had taken place with the focus on the four alleged assailants. Now, I just want to point out here that McDonald has always said that there was four, right? The, the black male, the two white males, and the white female. However, and it is pointed out, that if he's awoken by the screams of Colette and Kimberly, that's what awoke him, and he wakes to these four individuals above him, there had to be more than four, because who was attacking those two? So I'm going to go forward kind of saying four to six, maybe possibly more, because that's the only thing that will, okay, they're screaming for help, they're clearly being attacked, but it's clearly not by those four individuals in the living room with you, because they're being attacked down the hallway and in the bedroom. And is it possible that he misremembered? Possibly. Trauma? Sure, but he's always stuck to four individuals. Now, at this point, 150 to 200 individuals were interviewed and each were verified that they were not on the Fort Bragg base at the night of the murders and each of their alibis checked out. So there's this big contention that the army from the beginning just hyper-focused on McDonald and didn't look into the other alleged intruders, but they did. They conducted interviews. They went into Fayetteville. They went into the hippie community that I think was kind of located in a certain section of Fayetteville and they checked their alibis. Now, I will say McDonald was not shown a photo of any possible suspect. So if they had some suspects like, hey, does this person look like it would be someone that was in your house that night? That was never done. So now the defense has their time during this Article 32 hearing, and this is the first time they mention as a suspect of someone we'll come to know really tied to this case of Helena Stokely. A Mr. William Posey, who was a resident of the Haymount section of Fayetteville, which again, I think is that hippie drug center of Fayetteville, was a neighbor of Helena Stokely, and he says he witnessed her returning to the apartment between 3.45 to 4.30 a.m. on February 17th. He claims that she got out of a blue Mustang with at least two other hippie-type males inside. She told Posey that she was stoned, quote, uh, the night of the 16th and 17th and couldn't remember what she had done that evening. And on the day of the memorial services for Colette and Kimberly and Kristen, Helena had dressed in all black, which was not her typical attire. Posey would testify at the Article 32 hearing that on August 11th, he had another conversation with Helena about her involvement in the McDonald murders. And she told him at the time that she didn't know, as she had no memory of being there, but didn't think she could be involved with something like that. And how William Posey came to this was that he had tracked down Bernie Siegel at his hotel to share this information with him. And I believe that might have came after the Kassabs gave a $5,000 reward for any information of any assailants. Because at this point, the Kassabs were firmly in Jeffrey McDonald's corner. So 15 character witness testified in all, and Freddie Kassab was one of them. He testified that he knew of no issues between Colette and Jeff's marriage and told Colonel Rock that if he had another daughter, he would still want Jeffrey McDonald to be his son-in-law. I mean, that's high praise. This is the murder victim's father and grandfather. Now, Freddie at this time wasn't really getting an information of what was going on in the hearing because it was closed. 
the only information he would ever get would come from Jeffrey McDonald. So he wanted a transcript of the proceedings. Can I get a transcript for the day? You know, can I get a transcript of this? And McDonald would kind of keep putting them off. Whether there was not one typed up ready for him or not, I'm not sure, but he wasn't able to get one. So Colonel Rock even conducted two visits to 544 Castle Drive, the last one being on August 19, 1970, between the hours of 9 p.m. and 10 p.m., and he made several observations. He noted that there were no nicks on the ceiling living room or in Kimberly's bedroom. So if you think you're raising something above your head, be it a club or a bat, there most likely would be scrapings, especially being maybe 5859. So he looked at the simulated lighting conditions and was able to observe facial features in the living room. So he knew from the kitchen light being on in the hallway light, he could see people standing in the living room. And he kicked over the wooden coffee table that got caught on the rocking chair and it came to rest on his side. Now he made two recommendations at the end of all this Article 32 hearing. And this is taken directly from his report. So I'm just going to read it. He made two charges. One, all charges and specifications against Captain Jeffrey R. McDonald be dismissed because the matters set forth in all charges and specifications are not true. There are no lesser charges and slash or specifications which are appropriate. Two, the appropriate civilian authorities be requested to investigate the alibi of Helena Stokely, Fayetteville, North Carolina, reference her activities and whereabouts during the early morning hours of 17th of February 1970 based on evidence presented at the hearing. So there was not going to be a formal court-martial. And on October 23, 1970, Major General Edward Flanagan reported that there was insufficient evidence available to justify a court-martial, and he dismissed all charges. All right, everyone, we're going to stop there for this week's episode. It was a lot of information, again, I know, but we're laying out what happened, what evidence was collected, what's come into question from that evidence, and what happened to Jeffrey McDonald. And we're going to pick up next week and talking about what happened after he got out of the Army. So again, if you have any questions or thoughts or just something you want us to know that we may have missed, please reach out to us to do so. And we'd also ask that if you could take the time on whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. If you could write us a review and give us a rating, that would be great. We'd greatly appreciate it. So as always, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And so we're still in this pandemic, which... mm feels like 20 years now. But remember to be safe, wash your hands, social distance, wear your mask. It's those little things we can do to protect ourselves. But let's also be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.